Would you join with me in reading our scripture this morning? Luke 2, 22 through 38. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, it's great to be together on this Sunday before Christmas, um, on Days like this, Sundays like this, um, I always give thanks for the family of God. Uh, and so we welcome you this morning. If you're visiting with us or you're worshiping with us online, we welcome you as well. Wish you all a merry, merry Christmas. Well, as you're already aware, the, the theme that we have chosen this year for this season of Advent is simply two words, keeping Christmas. Uh, you may or may not know that try as you might, you will not find a single solitary command given in the Bible that we should celebrate the birth of the Savior. Some people find that to be very surprising, given that for nearly 18 centuries now, Christians have been doing that very thing. Accordingly, we find no prescriptions whatsoever in the pages of Scripture for those who may wish to do so, which means, in a sense, that this whole thing is entirely optional for us. Now, you can choose to celebrate Christmas or blow the whole thing off if you like. Uh, But if we choose to do so, as most of us will, there are two basic questions we must answer, at least to a significant degree. The first is, what should it mean for us who claim to be biblical Christians 
to keep or to rightly observe Christmas? I hope you realize this morning that's a very significant question. The second question is this. Are there any meaningful models in the pages of Scripture itself that provide us with clues as to priorities and practices that might lead us to a deeper, more satisfying, and spiritually nourishing observance? So what does it mean to keep Christmas? We've been trying to chip away at at the answer to that question each Sunday in this series. The English author Charles Dickens, at the close of his classic A Christmas Carol, said of his fictional protagonist Ebenezer Scrooge, and it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that be truly said of us and all of us. But if you know the story, you know that up until the very end of the story, those things hadn't previously been said of Scrooge. No one would have said those things of Scrooge. In fact, in the very first stave, we hear Scrooge expressing his total disdain for the holiday. If I could work my will, says Scrooge indignantly, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. Nice guy, Ebenezer. And yet, after being visited first by the ghost of his deceased partner, Jacob Marley, and the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future, he's a changed man. And at the last, he promises, I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. Well, what should it look like to keep Christmas well? For Scrooge, it meant a moral reformation. Dickens says of him at the close of the book that Scrooge became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city ever knew, or any other good old city, town, or borough in the good old world. It's wonderful, isn't it? But as praiseworthy as such a radical reformation may be, uh, we're left to ask of Mr. Dickens, is that all there is? to keeping Christmas well, a moral reformation. Good old Scrooge. Well, the answer is no, that's not all. It's a great deal more than acknowledging that Santa or that awful little elf on the shelf sees you when you're sleeping, knows when you're awake, knows when you have been bad or good, and, and therefore being good for goodness sake. On the contrary, the reality is that to keep Christmas is to fulfill the intent and purpose of Christmas by observing it with the respect and reverence that the earth-shattering event it commemorates is due. That is the mystery of the eternal Son of God stooping to take on human flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth and in that human flesh to suffer and then to die at the hands of sinful men in order to save them from their sins. The Apostle John, in the prologue to his gospel, gives us a major clue to the key to keeping Christmas, which is simply to recognize and to receive Jesus for who he really is. Our Creator, Sovereign Lord, Only Savior. And so by personal faith in him, to receive from him three essential gifts. The gift of sins forgiven, 
the gift of adoption into the family of God, and the gift of eternal life, among others. In the opening verse of today's scripture passage, which we read earlier, we're provided on the eighth day of Jesus' life with yet another graphic reminder that Joseph and Mary were faithful, observant Jews. I might interject at this point that um, as I started into this, I had grand intentions because this is a passage that nobody teaches on. You rarely, you rarely study this passage. And uh, I realized as I got into the preparation that I may have bitten off way more than I can chew. Uh, so I hope that you'll pray for me this morning and that you'll bear with me. Day eight of the life, the earthly life, of Jesus, God's Son. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel, before he was conceived in the womb. Uh, You'll be glad, relieved actually, to know that I have no intention of getting into a full discussion about the nature and purpose of circumcision, but, but only of noting, first of all, uh, Mary and Joseph's obedience to the law. And, and secondly, recognizing that Jesus himself was born under the law and was himself subject to it. We read of God's initiation of circumcision as the sign of the covenant, clear back in Genesis 17, where God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is, notice this, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. A male child was not Jewish at birth by virtue of having been born to Jewish parents but only became a Jew and was included among the covenant people of God on the eighth day of his life when he was circumcised and initiated into the covenant with Abraham. And one might ask why it was that Jesus, since he's the son of God, the giver of the law, was himself subject to this requirement. The apostle Paul wrote to the churches in the region of Galatia, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born, notice, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So understand that it was necessary for Jesus, the incarnate son of God, to be completely identified with sinful humanity in order to become our redeemer. We see the same principle at work when we read in Matthew, uh, Matthew's gospel that Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by 
John the Baptist or the baptizer. And it says there that John protested at first, saying to Jesus, and rightly saying this, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. It was Jesus' complete submission to the law and his perfect fulfillment of the law that qualified him to be the sinless representative of sinful humanity the unblemished Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Coinciding with the ritual of circumcision was the ritual of naming. And you'll recall that the angel had said to Mary, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And then subsequently to Joseph in a dream, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The angel had been insistent that Mary's baby be given no other name but Jesus. And he told Joseph why. It was because Jesus would save his people from their sins. The name of the God of Israel, as it was first declared to Moses, is Yahweh which means I am that I am. I am that I am. It expresses both his eternal nature, his eternal existence. I am, not I was or will be, but I am. I am that I am. His eternal nature and his sovereign authority. Jesus, then, is the parallel to the Hebrew, the Greek parallel to the Hebrew name Yehoshua, or Yeshua, which may sound a lot to you like the name Joshua, because it is the same name, and it means Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation. Then we think of Jesus as the Savior, and he is, but we may forget at times that his name itself declares that God is by nature a Savior. Consider what God said through the prophet Isaiah, chapter 43, verse 1, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Or in chapter 43, verse 11, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Or Isaiah 60, verse 16, You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. In Psalm 68, David wrote, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. See, we can, we can tend to have this kind of a, a good cop, bad cop view of God, Jesus the Savior, the good cop, God the righteous judge, the bad cop, right? But we need to lose that. And you see, Christmas was of God's initiation. 
It was his idea. It was his enterprise from first to last. Jesus himself expressed this truth to his friend Nicodemus when he said, for God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And you're familiar with that verse, but notice the verbs. God loved. He gave. God sent his son not to condemn us, but in love to save us. Well, let's just jump a a month forward to day 40 of Jesus' infancy, where we read in verses 22 to 24 of Mary and Joseph going up to the temple in Jerusalem for two more rituals prescribed by the law of Moses. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now it's important to understand what's happening here in verses 22 to 24. Notice first of all the threefold repetition of the word law in these three verses. In verse 22, the law of Moses. In verse 23, the law of the Lord. Again in verse 24, the law of the Lord. According to the law of the Lord, every firstborn son was to be presented to him and then could be redeemed. In Exodus 13.1, the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then in Numbers 18.15, you must redeem every firstborn son. See, the law provided that the firstborn should be, first of all, presented to the Lord. We have a, a an example of that in the Old Testament where Hannah presents her son Samuel, her firstborn, to the Lord and doesn't redeem him. She she takes him to the, the uh, high priest and essentially says, he's yours. And, and then Samuel grew up there with Eli. But the law provided then, secondly, that the firstborn should be redeemed in most cases or bought back with a financial offering. The the prescribed amount was five shekels of silver. And this was one of the many ways by which the whole congregation of Israel was irregularly reminded that they are holy to the Lord, that they're a peculiar people, that they belong to him. And so this was one of the purposes for which Joseph, Mary, and Jesus came up to Jerusalem to the temple. But before Mary could participate in the redemption ceremony, according to the law of the Lord, the matter of her own ceremonial uncleanness would have to be addressed. It's written in Leviticus 12, 1 through 4, that when a Jewish woman gave birth, she became, in the Jewish system, ceremonially unclean, meaning that she was for a time excluded from participation in the religious life of Israel, including attending the temple. 
Having given birth to a son, she'd be unclean for 40 days from the day of his birth. And at the conclusion of this period, she would offer a sacrifice, either a lamb, now notice this, either a lamb and a pigeon or a dove. One was a burnt offering, one was a sacrifice offering. Or if she was a poor woman, low income, just two doves or two young pigeons. These would be offered to God by a priest, and the woman would then be considered clean. As Luke describes Mary and Joseph participating in these rituals, he wants us to understand them as righteous and devout. They were keepers of the law. They were obedient to the law of God. By indicating that they offered a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons as the sacrifice for Mary's purification, he wants us to understand that they were poor. They were poor. It was while Mary and Joseph were there in the temple to present Jesus to the Lord that they experienced this very unusual encounter with an unusual man named Simeon. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Amazing. In just two short verses, Luke says a mouthful about this man and what made him so unique. Again, to say that that Simeon was righteous is to say that he was diligent in his observance of the law, that his desire was to live a life that met God's approval. And it was for this reason that he was also devout. And you say, what's the difference? The word devout literally means to lay hold of that which is good. It's the action, it's the motivation that follows on righteousness, on the desire to please God. Therefore, I lay hold of that which is good. I make that the priority of my life. Simeon was part of a minority in Israel, a righteous remnant who, though most had turned away uh, and abandoned faith in the promises of God, had remained faithful to God and to his word. Luke adds that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. It seems, doesn't it, that that nearly all the major figures who appear in these early pages of Luke's gospel are waiting. Zechariah and Elizabeth were waiting. Mary and Joseph are waiting. And now we read regarding this man Simeon that he too was waiting, as was Anna, whom we'll meet in just a moment. The writer uh, Henry Nouwen commented that the whole opening scene of the good news is filled with waiting people. No wonder that this season of Advent is all about waiting. Simeon was waiting, Luke says, for the consolation of Israel. The prophet Isaiah spoke of this consolation repeatedly. For example, listen to this beautiful promise in chapter 25 of Isaiah's Prophecy, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, presumably Mount Zion, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. 
And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And in chapter 40, verses 1 to 2, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. This promise of comfort anticipated not only a future messianic age, but the future appearing of Messiah the person. The comforter of Israel was the title given to Messiah, the the one who would come to fulfill every promise of God to his people and to bring them personal salvation, personal salvation to those like Simeon, whose hearts were prepared to receive him. Luke adds the the important note here that the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. In the Old Testament age, the Holy Spirit was not yet given as an abiding presence in the way that we experience him today. Nor was the Spirit given to just anyone, only to a select few. And for a select period of time, not as a permanent gift, not as a permanent presence or enablement. The hand of God and the Spirit of God were on this man Simeon, and and he had received revelation by the Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. What a promise. What an amazing man. What an amazing promise he had personally received from God. It seems, doesn't it, as you read these opening chapters of Luke, that the Holy Spirit is just turning up everywhere. And now in verse 27, Luke says of Simeon that he came in the Spirit into the temple. He came in the Spirit into the temple. And I'll be honest to say, I'm not fully sure what that means. Um, But I take it to mean at least this, that, that the Spirit that day prompted Simeon, moved Simeon, to go into the temple at just the right time to cross paths with Mary and Joseph and Jesus. Someone I read this week said he came into the temple at the very moment that the the little Lamb of God came into the temple, the sacrificial Lamb of God. And God also gave to Simeon by the Holy Spirit, and this is miraculous, God gave to Simeon by the Holy Spirit the ability to recognize the infant Christ without so much as a personal introduction. 
This is such a poignant scene. At verse 27, And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now, notice with me how Simeon refers to Jesus. My eyes have seen your salvation. Without even knowing the baby's name, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he speaks his name, your salvation. Again, Yeshua, Jesus, the Lord saves. And the salvation he brings, Simeon acknowledges, will be not only for Israel as a nation, but also for the Gentiles as well. Consider the scope of the salvation that Christ brings. The same light that brings revelation to pagan Gentiles brings glory to God's people Israel. Jesus, Simeon is saying, will be the Savior of the whole world. John MacArthur said regarding this moment, Simeon holds in his arms the silent little baby boy who is the most glorious influential, powerful person the world has ever seen, divine majesty in a tiny bundle. And having then experienced the fulfillment of the revelation he had personally received from the Holy Spirit, Simeon's life was complete. And so he prays, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. You've kept your promise. My hope, my life, fulfilled. And now I'm ready to die. I I wonder if that can be your prayer this morning. Because having personally met Jesus and transferred your trust to him, knowing with confidence that your sins are forgiven and that you have eternal life, you too are ready to die. And if not, why not? You think about that, and at the close in a few moments, I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that very thing. In verse 33, Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph marveled at what was said about their baby boy, but then Simeon's communication turns in a direction they may not have yet anticipated and to things they may not have wanted to hear. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. 700 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah prophesied in chapter 7 that Emmanuel, God with us, was coming. And in the very next chapter, he clearly says that for many, Emmanuel would be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Simeon picks up that same theme in his prophecy here in Luke 2. Mary's baby would bring about the fall of many. 
his message and ministry would generate opposition. You remember Jesus himself said on one occasion, uh, do not think that I have come to bring peace. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And that, that sword would, would divide. The opposition that Mary's baby would receive would result in condemnation, separation from God, irretrievable disaster, eternal judgment for those who opposed him. Simeon said he would also bring about the rising of many. And the word translated rising is anastasis. It means literally to stand up again. In the scriptures, it's used in reference to physical resurrect, physical resurrection from the dead. Accordingly, Jesus would later say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. When Jesus said, I am the resurrection, he used the very same word that Simeon used here in the temple, Anastasis. I am the resurrection. What Simeon is saying is that Messiah will be the great divider. He himself is the point at which the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. See, your personal response to Jesus Christ will determine the trajectory of your life, both for time and for eternity. Simeon adds a personal note for Mary, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Pain is in your future, Mary. Mary, did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? That the child that you delivered would soon will soon deliver you? Did you know, Mary, that your baby boy will take upon himself your sins and the sins of the whole world as one day you watch him suffer and die on a Roman cross? Nope. On that day in the temple, she didn't really know. But in time she would, and she would believe and be numbered among his disciples. But then another unusual experience began to unfold as they stood there with Simeon in the temple, this time an encounter with an old woman named Anna. It's the same name as Hannah. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Luke tells us three very interesting things about Anna. I mentioned her name means favor or grace. But he adds then that she was a prophetess. And we know that prophetesses operated both in Old Testament and New Testament times. Second, that she was advanced in years. And there are two possible ways of understanding Luke's meaning here in verses 36 and 37. There's there's some ambiguity in Luke's grammar at this point in the Greek text. The first is as The English Standard Version puts it, being the version that that we use here at LifePoint, 
that she lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. Another way of reading the Greek text is that she lived 84 years after she was widowed, which if she was married at 13 or 14, which many, many Jewish girls were, would mean that when Joseph and Mary met her in the temple, she may have been 104 or 105 years of age. Anna was an old woman. Third, we learn that she never left the temple. Um, but probably lived in a house or an apartment close by the temple and spent her days and nights worshiping, fasting, and praying. Imagine that. She never left church. Some of you are wondering right about now if you'll ever get out of here. This old woman showed up, broke into thanksgiving and praise to God and began to prophesy on this occasion, speaking of the baby Jesus, to all, it says, who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Let me simplify that for you. They were waiting for the Redeemer. Well, what does Simeon and Anna have to teach us about keeping Christmas? Let me suggest just a couple of things. The first is, first has to do with anticipation. Simeon and Anna stand out to us as two people who lived their lives in focused anticipation. Anticipation is always founded upon a promise. In this case, they were waiting for the arrival of a person, a comforter, a savior, a redeemer. Their anticipation was anchored to the Promises of God given through the prophets by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. See, minus the promises, there could be no anticipation. In an Advent devotional that I've been reading this month, I came across an essay written by Henry Nouwen titled Waiting for God. Allow me to share a couple of lines. He wrote, people who wait have received a promise that allows them to wait. They have received something that is at work in them, like a seed that has started to grow. This is very important. We can only really wait if what we are waiting for has already begun for us. So waiting is never a movement from nothing to something. It is always a movement from something to something more. Simeon and Anna were living with a promise, in fact, a multitude of promises that nurtured them, that fed them, that enabled them to persevere, to endure. By the Spirit of God, the promises of God just kept growing in them and for them. And so they were waiting in faith and hope. We often think of waiting as a passive activity, don't we? I mean, a somewhat hopeless, miserable state determined by people and events totally out of our hands, like waiting for a bus or a train or standing in line at the DMV. There's just nothing you can do. You, you just sit there and you have to wait. I recently saw this on a t-shirt. It said, I had my patience tested. I'm negative. 
And most of us can relate, can't we? Nobody likes to wait. But Simeon and Anna present to us a very different model, one that is not passive, but active. Simeon and Anna were waiting in active faith and active hope. They knew that what they were waiting for would soon appear. Like the seed that now when referred to that's, that's germinated uh, is growing, will eventually break through the surface of the soil, Messiah would come at just the right time, in the fullness of time, as Paul put it, because God had promised that he would. And so they were able to be patient and present to the moment, in anticipation that any given moment may just be the moment. A Jewish writer by the contemporary Jewish writer by the name of Shimon Weil commented that waiting patiently in expectation, waiting patiently in expectation is the foundation of the spiritual life. I think that's true. So how could we go about keeping Christmas like Simeon and Anna? See, what Simeon and Anna were waiting for was the first advent, the first appearing of Emmanuel, God with us, the Messiah, Jesus. Their hope instilled became hope fulfilled that day in the temple when at last they saw the Savior with their own eyes. In this season of Advent, we anticipate what they anticipated. And on Christmas Day, we celebrate what they celebrated, though we view it from a vantage point 2,000 years removed. So here we are. 2,000 years closer to his second advent, and again, waiting. As Titus put it, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And on what basis are we waiting? Again, on the basis of the promises of God. Not long before he went to the cross, Jesus informed his disciples repeatedly, actually, that he was going to suffer and die and rise again from the dead. And the prospect was understandably upsetting to them. But Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How could we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, Jesus promised, didn't he, that he would come again. Now, that's not the only promise of Jesus, that he would come again. It's one of several. And that seed grows within us. We are nurtured and fed by it. It enables us to endure. And so we wait in faith and we wait in hope. 
And of course, some people think we're crazy. The Apostle Peter said that in these last days, there will be scoffers who will say, where is the fulfillment of his promise? All of those events that are described in the Bible have been in our rearview mirror now for 21 centuries. And everything seems to be going on just as it has from the beginning of creation. Why on earth are we still waiting? Why hasn't he come? Shouldn't we just face the facts and give up hope? But then Peter adds this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is himself patient toward you. He's waiting, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, the sovereign creator God does not operate on the same clock that we do. He's not confined to our calendar. He stands outside of time and is not controlled by time as we understand it. But he is always on time. There's a reason Jesus hasn't shown up yet. God's patience means that you still have time to consider who he is and to respond appropriately. And the appropriate response, Peter says, is that each of us would remember the predictions of the prophets and the words of Jesus and repent. That is, change our minds about who Jesus is, understand that he is God's son and our only savior, Realize that time is short. He is coming again soon. And so transfer our trust to him. See, and here's what I'd like to leave you with today. God is patient. But his patience won't last forever. See, we have a a window of opportunity to come to terms with who Jesus is to repent of our sin and receive him as Savior and Lord. But that window of opportunity is soon going to close. Jesus is coming. And when he will comes, when he comes, he will come suddenly and without notice. Someday, that day, will be this day. The Apostle Paul gives us a glimpse of what that moment will be like. First Thessalonians 4, beginning at verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. It's going to be noisy. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another, encourage one another with these words. Are you ready? Will you be able to, on that day, to say with Simeon, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word? Or does the prospect of your own death, like old Scrooge, strike terror in your heart? because you know you're not ready. When Jesus says, surely I am coming soon, are you able to reply, amen, come Lord Jesus? 
If not, then I invite you this morning on this final Sunday in Advent to put your faith in Jesus Christ and say to him in simple faith something like this. I believe in you, Jesus. I believe that you are God's son. I believe that when you died, you bore my sins on the cross. Forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. Make me a new person. And when you come, Lord Jesus, take me home to be with you forever. Amen. Are you ready? Have you prayed that prayer? Let's pray together. Lord, would you make these words live to us? Would you breathe life into them? in our minds and hearts that we would respond in the way that your Holy Spirit is moving us to respond. I pray that there may be some in this room who would today transfer their trust from all the other things that they've been holding on to, to Jesus, the Redeemer, the Savior, and what he accomplished for them at the cross. Lord, the ground is level at the cross. We all stand there together, guilty in our sin, but because of the blood of Christ that trickles down from the cross, made clean, made righteous, forgiven, justified by faith. So, Lord, I pray that today you would grant to some the gift of faith that leads to life. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.